it's an overdue discussion that needs to take place inside of uh, inside of our churches. So anyway, we really appreciate you being here. And now that a dog has barked, we have to make our, our official John Piper joke. Yeah. <laughs> no puppies were harmed in the recording of this podcast. <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Nat Turney, with my brother, John Turney, as always. Say what's up, John. What's up, John? See, at least I changed it up. It wasn't hi, John. It was you what's did. up, John. You, you know, did. I could have done the whole like, what? but I, I, I opted to not do that. I know. I have couth and tap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's this, what we're going with here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go with couth and tact. Uh, this is the podcast that we have lovingly uh, entitled This Is Not Church. And we are honored today to have a really awesome, outstanding guest with us. Uh, her name is Lisa Sharon Harper. And I'm going to read just a quick rundown. Uh, won't even come close to telling you everything you, you need to know about this amazing woman, but we'll get a little bit of a glimpse into who she is. So here we go. Lisa Sharon Harper is the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. A sought-after speaker, trainer, and consultant, Harper has written several books, including Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and How to Repair It, uh, how to repair it all, and the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel. Her work has been featured in the, in the New Yorker, Relevant, Essence, HuffPost, the National Civic Review, and CNN, and she has appeared on PBS's Religion and Ethics News Weekly, TV One, Fox News, NPR, and Al Jazeera America. Harper previously served as the Chief Church Engagement Officer at Sojourners, where she mobilized the church to engage campaigns on immigration reform and racial justice. She has researched her family's origins for three decades and presented on, presented on her ancestors' achievements at the African American Civil War Museum. Harper lives in the same Philadelphia neighborhood where three generations of her ancestors lived. Welcome to the program, Lisa. How are you today? I am so great. Thank you so much, Nat, and oh, also John, for uh, for welcoming me. It is so awesome to be in conversation with you and also with your listeners. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening. Thank you, and thank you for tolerating my bumbling through your through your bio <laughs> as though oh, no, I was reading it for the first time. This is not. This is neither John's or my strong suit. Um, I'm not sure we have a strong suit. Is, if we're being we, honest, we do need to. We do need to like <laughs> say that you do it a lot better than I do. We we used to bounce it back and forth, and we came to the conclusion that I just that was not something I should do. <laughs> yeah, but that's a that's a pretty low bar. But anyway, um, yeah, man, there's just a, there's a lot to get to. Um, kind of one of our first opening salvo questions that we we ask pretty much everybody on the program since this is a faith based show, and um, we just love to get people's um, faith background stories. If if you're comfortable sharing, kind of kind of where you've come from and where you find yourself these days. Uh, with respect to faith? Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I always kind of shudder at that question because I can't only tell you my faith story. I have to tell you this faith story of my family mm. in order for you to understand the significance of where I stand right now. Um, my family has, I mean, decades, maybe even centuries, I don't know, in the, rooted in the Black Episcopal Church. And on my mom's side, the Black Episcopal Church and the Black um, Pentecostal and Charismatic Church on my dad's side. And so, uh, but it wasn't there that I found Jesus. In fact, my mom kind of walked away from the church um, in the middle of the civil rights movement because she didn't see the church actually responding. Even the Black church, the majority of Black churches were not responding in Philadelphia where she lived. Um, they were not like 
saying yes. Like, let's, let's jump in. Everybody was just trying to, you know, not rock the boat too much. And you can understand at that time, we can talk more about that later, but just to say that that was a transition time and it's something that they had not experienced before, that level of rocking of the boat. So most churches were like, nah, we're, we're going to sit this one out. So that disillusioned her and she walked away and the civil rights movement became her church. And, um, and then we kind of went to church every Easter, every other Easter on a good year, you know, growing <laughs> up. So I didn't even know Jesus was the main man in the Bible. I thought Luke was the main man in the Bible because that was the name of our church, St. Luke's. <laughs> <laughs> In, right. in Philadelphia. I really did. I really did. <laughs> but my, my grandmother had faith. And so when I, when I would go to visit her and um, I would sleep with her at night and she always read the Bible before she went to sleep. So she would give me a Bible as well to read before I went to sleep. And of course, I didn't know how to read the Bible. So I just looked for Luke. I would open up the Bible and just look. I would spend, I don't know how long, looking for Luke. And I would find Luke and I'd say, okay, did it. And then I would go to sleep. <laughs> that was like the extent of it. And, my, and I found out later that my grandfather on my dad's side was a pastor and he, like his family was more um, Pentecostal. Coming from the Caribbean, Caribbean Pentecostal. And so, but I didn't grow up with either of those faiths, right? So what, what happened to me was my mom and dad divorced. We moved down to Cape May, New Jersey. And it was there that I met white Jesus. <laughs> it was there that I met white evangelicalism. And I went down the aisle in 1983 on a Sunday evening, August 21st um, at 8.30 p.m. around, between 8.30 and 9.30, I don't know exactly. They had the altar call and I had sat through a million altar calls over the course of that year. I'd been to every concert, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. Because wow. I was investigating who is Jesus in this mostly white context that I was in now in Cape May, New Jersey. And and what is this prayer thing and who is God? Because I, I knew nothing. And so at the end of that year, after having sat through a million altar calls, I finally said, okay, when my friend tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you go down with me? <laughs> would you go down to the altar with me? And I was really surprised because she was already, I thought she was already a Christian, but she ended up crying at the altar. And then I started crying and then the old lady surrounded us. And next thing you know, I was in the kingdom. <laughs> I, I joke that I got into the kingdom by proxy on that day. So there you go. I like that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. That's real. That really happened. Yeah. So it's it's funny because I'm sorry. Um, I just want to say that it's funny because that entry point to my faith, like coming into the faith in 1983 through the white evangelical church, is significant in my own story, because that year, 1983, was the year that the moral majority was created. Right. It's the year that the religious right was really born. They were they were gestating up to that year, and that year they really got born. And um, and I came into the white evangelical church at exactly that point and was told pretty quickly by my friends, not by adults, but by friends, you have to become a Republican now. Right? Oh, yeah. Since, oh, yeah. Since, I mean, really, like explicitly so. And so I tried to convince my mom to vote for Reagan in 1984. She was like, who are you and what have you done with my child? <laughs> um, you know, she was a member of the civil rights movement, remember? So SNCC, she, she dated Stokely Carmichael. She was like, I am not. Yes, she did. Holy cow. I am not, I am not voting for, um, you haven't read that part of the book yet. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that caught him completely by surprise. <laughs> well, but, um, you see me like, like frantically searching. I have a, a Stokely Carmichael book somewhere on my desk right oh, now. Oh, wow. 
And so, but that, yeah, so she dated him. So she looked at me like, who are you? You yeah. don't belong to us. And, and that really, that, that separated us for decades. And it's really been only in the last maybe two decades that maybe, that we've begun, maybe the last 15 years, we've begun to, to um, heal heal that relationship and come back together. Till now we actually live together. Um, that does not mean we're all well though. You know, moms sure. and daughters living together are like, well. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I have, let me ask you a question then. Cause that's a, that's a, what a, what an interesting, oh wow. Just there's, there's 15 jump off points there. I do want to for sure talk about your book and I'm, I'm sure this comes up. Um, this will, this will be, featured prominently in there somewhere. But as you're coming into the church world simultaneously or at least contemporaneous with the emergence of the moral majority, how do you, how do you feel that the, that that influence either fractured or damaged the evangelical church? Uh, To me, it seems like it's irreparable almost, but um, from your perspective, what do you see there? Well, it, it actually is in my book. It's, it's This is chapter seven of my book. It's my story. So the book traces 10 generations of my family wow. in order for us to understand America better. So we're looking at American laws and policies and structures that were crafted over the course of 10 generations and how those laws structures and policies shaped the lives of actual human beings on the ground, being my family. And then also, of course, millions of other people of African descent and white folk, mm-hmm. right? And Native people. Like, so we're going to the whole deal because it's all wrapped up in my family story. So when, when I got to my chapter, it was actually the hardest chapter to write, part, partly because, you know, I know my whole life. So it's like, okay, so what are you going to write in like 10 pages? It's right. like, how do, you, how do you boil life down to 10 pages? Um, well, it was probably 15. I stretched it to 15 or something like that. But it, it was, I think that the marriage, I know this to be true, the marriage between the conservative movement, the Republican Party and evangelicalism was the demise of all three. Mm-hmm. I agree. All three. Yeah. All three. Um, it, it, it literally corrupted all three. Um, before that moment, you had William Buckley and his, you know, conservative um, uh, mantra, you know, his, his conservative ideology, which I still disagreed with. And he, he, he improperly placed race as not that important. Right. Um, and that's just wrong. It's just, it's just wrong. And so you cannot do a political analysis or an economic analysis of America without the, without taking into consideration the construct of race and its impact. And that we actually look at in my book. And so, but, you know, but he wasn't, he wasn't Trump. I mean, he wasn't, right. he wasn't January 6th. He wasn't all that. But, and the Republican party did not actually before 1980, didn't have a solid ideology that it, that it, it adhered to. The Republican party was the party of Lincoln. The Republican party was the party that actually, that, that had the radical Republicans, right? That, that were the ones who actually established the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. Um, and so it's in the course of the 20th century that they began to shift and it all shifted around race. That's where it shifted. And the Democratic party, the same. They were, they were the party that was fighting to keep the slaves, right? Right. So, right. Um, to keep slavery, but that shifted also after World War II. And so what you have in 1980, 1983, is you have this, I think, uh, I mean, just demonic marriage, demonic yeah. marriage between 
the evangelical church, which had gone underground after the monkey trials had embarrassed them back in the 1920s. And, um, and the monkey trials being like the whole evolution in the schools thing. And they were like, they lost. And so they were embarrassed. So they went underground. So you have that, that embarrassment. But the thing that brought them back out to fight was not abortion. It was not Roe v. Wade. They were still, they weren't even silent during Roe v. Wade. Most of them, including Southern Baptist Convention, said, yeah, that was a good ruling. They literally made statements saying, good ruling, right. good on you, right, for Roe v. Yeah. Wade. But it was, it was um, uh, Bob Jones University versus the USA that brought them out in force because that was the, that was the direct fruit of the civil rights movement. Now moving into the heart of evangelical America, threatening white supremacy there. Threatening the race schools that developed as a result of, and also before, Bob Jones was before, but certainly most of them were, were as a result of the Civil Rights Act, which declared, which enforced Brown v. Board saying separate is not equal. So desegregation of schools. Um, so when when the U.S., tax um, IRS went after Bob Jones University because they had, they were accepting tax exemptions as a religious entity, but they were also um, uh, not abiding by the Civil Rights Act and the title in it in particular that that did not allow for for segregation. Um, Bob Jones University fought that for like a decade. And it was that fight that mobilized um, Jim Baker and Pat Buchanan and and others to fight to, to, to rally to Bob Jones University's aid and to begin to unite a movement within the evangelical world around this political conservative political agenda. The conservative um, uh, organizer at the time, Paul Weirich, said, said explicitly, and this is actually documented really well in several books by Randall Balmer, and most recently in his book, Bad Faith. And he talks about how Paul Weirich told him specifically and others um, in a room in 1990, I think 91, that the, that the religious right did not develop out of abortion, out of Roe v. Wade, White evangelicals specifically could not be organized around those issues in the 1960s and 19, early 1970s. The only thing that organized them, that made them rally, was Bob Jones University losing their tax-exempt status because they were being called to desegregate. That is what organized the religious right. And that that ruling came down in 1983. Isn't that shocking, though? I mean, that, I mean, shocking to me that that's, that's as contemporary, I guess maybe, if, of course, I'm a child of the 70s, so the 80s still seem pretty recent to me. Um, but that's shocking to me. I grew up pretty much most of my life being aware of the moral majority. Um, Oral Roberts and, you know, all of his ilk and John and I, of course, being raised in, in mostly evangelical churches of one stripe or another. To me, it's almost gotten to the point Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop qualifying these statements. It's gotten to the point, yeah. not almost. It's at the yeah, point yeah. now where yeah. those three things are inextricably intertwined. Like I don't know how you unravel them. I don't know that you can. Whatever political arm is married, I always call it an, an, an unholy union. Whose bastard child is always violence. Whose bastard child is always exclusion. Um, yes. But there's yeah. this unholy union of church and you know religion and politics, and, and then you throw whatever cause du jour, mm-hmm. whatever. I, mean, I like what you said there. 
um, it seems like they'll search for whatever rallying point they can find. Oh, and that's exactly what they did. They said, we what can't would a lightning rally rod around. be? Right, right. And now in 18, 1983, the reason why the rally point shifted to abortion then is because they lost. They lost the Supreme Court case with Bob Jones. And so they realized we can't rally around race anymore. They had been rallying around race for the entire 20th century up to that point. It was those people, those exact people that were fighting on the side of segregation back in the 60s, fighting against Dr. King, fighting against Rosa Parks, fighting against desegregation of buses and schools and lunch counters. They were, that was those people. And now since they lost Bob Jones, they said, we can't win this as long as the Supreme Court has, uh, um, even, even half of the Supreme Court is moderate or liberal because it's the Supreme Court that instituted um, Brown versus the Board of Education that the Civil Rights Act rests on and that Bob Jones was ruled according to. Mm. So now we have to change the Supreme Court and it's the Supreme Court then that became the primary strategy um, of the right to shift the world. So in 1983, they came out with their strategy. And part of that strategy was to vote in conservative members of the Supreme Court. And that was their goal. So they used abortion because at that point, abortion was a, was a viable rally cry right. because of the, the newness of Roe v. Wade and, and the fact that now for the first time in America, Abortions were being, were being documented. They were being tracked. So now you had people going from thinking that there's no abortions going on, which is not true, to going like now they're, they're actually being tracked. And you can see that there's a rise in, in the number that are being tracked because you didn't track them before. But you have that moment um, at the same time that the civil, that Dr. King has died, has been assassinated, and the rise of the women's movement and the ERA. And so they, they moved, they shifted um, the same tactic, changed the court in order to maintain white male supremacy, but now we're going to use abortion to do it. And that has been their strategy ever since. Well, and, and I've said this before, and I've, I've posted on this before, that one of the reasons I feel that they have, they have latched onto abortion as this way of continuing the, this idea of the moral majority, the religious right, the conservative movement, whatever you want to call it, is that I think deep down, one, they don't want it to change. Right. They don't no, want the law to change. And no. two, if it did, they would have to go out and find something else, something else to rally behind, right? So, well, I mean, honestly, they kind of, the thing is, here's the thing. Think about this. Think about this, John. Last, well, two years ago, we put on Amy Comey Barrett onto the Supreme Court and that tipped the scales of the Supreme Court to be extremely conservative now. Now there's a, there's a vast minority of, of moderate to liberal voices on the court. And that means that there's no possibility really of, of having um, rulings that are, that are going to benefit people of color because Never in the history of the Supreme Court has there ever been a majority conservative ruling that has upheld or, or strengthened the rights of people of color. Never. So when you make that the calculus, right now what we are, what we have is we have the same calculus in our Supreme Court that we had when Plessy versus Ferguson was ruled mm. back in the 1890s. Plessy versus Ferguson wow. said, 
separate and equal is just fine. That's the calculus we have in the court right now. That's the makeup, the the ratio um, that we have. And that was the goal. So now what's what's happened? Well, you know, we're still doing abortion, but now they're going, they're going for guts, right? They're going for blood. They're doing it now um, legally. They're not legally. They're trying to completely overturn it according to the court, but they also need something else because it is going, like, that's going to be gone pretty soon. Roe v. Wade is going to be dead pretty soon. That's kind of the accepted understanding. Well, what do we need then? We still need a rally cry. Right. Now we have CTR. Now we have critical race yeah. theory. That has become the new bogeyman. So, I mean, would you go as far as to say that, like I was saying that, so the abortion debate was always going to be a debate because they needed that as their rallying cry. But now, yeah. okay, so here we have this 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 reemergence of, I don't want to say reemergence, that's like the wrong way to say it, but this this new connection or whatever to, to a, yeah to to a race movement right to yeah. to a race war if you want to call it that yeah. so now they have yeah. that as their rallying cry so now it's like okay let's let's finally push on abortion and and make it illegal because we have this other rallying cry now which we have seen now through uh through through the presidency of 45 uh of what he what he has done and he has brought out in people that we know it was always there, right? I, here's the thing, John. I think that part of what we, we have to understand that this is all happening in a larger context, a larger political context in America that never before in American history have white people, people of European descent been in the minority. So Starting in 1662 with the very first race law that we talk about in chapter one of, of Fortune, right? And right. then 1664, the first Maryland, colony of Maryland race law that impacted my family, you have the supremacy of whiteness established legally on this soil. And that's a construct, right? right. So since 1662, we've had that construct. We've had the assumption that white maleness is going to be supreme. Is going there, there's an assumption of rulership, an assumption of of agency, an assumption of stewardship, divine call to steward this land, right? Right. So in 23 years, demographers say America will no longer be majority white, majority people of European descent. It will now be no clear majority, but if you look at it in terms of white and people of color, majority of people of color. And that, that is what is causing them to crack down now on abortion laws. Because not only, I think people have to understand, white women were never really intended to be a part of the franchise. Um, we see in chapter one of my book that that very first Maryland race law that was passed, they said, if a white woman marries a, an enslaved black man and has children by that black man, who are now mixed race children, she herself shall be enslaved by her husband's master until her husband dies. And then her children and their children will be enslaved in perpetuity. So even they even used back then, these white men who were the planter class, they even used their own women to, to gain their own economic, um, economic foothold here. In that deep, so white women were really never meant to be part of the franchise. And then immediately, I'm telling you, this is like so freaking, like when I did this research and I saw this, my eyes just popped. 
immediately after the Revolutionary War and the establishment of our Constitution, the first Congress, 19, or not 19, 1787, right around that time after the Revolutionary War, white women lost the right to vote in almost every colony, every state now, right? And New Jersey was the last one to go. New Jersey was the last state to go. It was like in the early 1800s. But one by one, as America became America, women lost the right to vote. So you cannot say, this is not just about whiteness, it's about white men. It's right. about the, 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 the moves, the political maneuvering to maintain white male domination, dominion on this land. And it has unfortunately been something that the church has either not fought co-opted and actually um, used itself in order to maintain white, white male dominion within the church. You can see that clearly within the Southern Baptist Convention and also the PCUSA. I'm sorry, PCA, not PCUSA, PCA, um, Presbyterian Church in America. Um, you can see that in other conservative, um, other, other um, white evangelical denominations that align with the conservative political movement, right? Um, so the church is implicated and the church has been implicated from the very beginning. The church was the, the arbiter of indenture or slave, slavehood. I found out in the course of my research in Maryland and in, and it turns out in most of the colonies eventually. So when we ask the question of like why the religious right gained power within the evangelical world, it's because the evangelical world is run by the very same people that have been fighting this fight for white male power since 1662. On that point you make about patriarchy is not lost on us. I mean, it is, it's a, I was going to say it makes me wonder. I, I keep couching these things in kind terms. I'm going to stop being so kind. I know for a fact that if the evangelical right did not absolutely need white women right now, they would go back to their old ways. Absolutely. Of, of suppressing and subjugating and putting them, the only, they're mercenary if nothing else. And they're pragmatic if nothing else, right? So they see a useful demographic for now. Um, dear white evangelical women, you're being used. Stop letting them use you. I mean, I, it, this it runs so deep. Go ahead, I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. A, a clear example of that comes from my experience of um, the white evangelical world in college. I was a part of a college ministry that um, that did not allow women to lead and only allowed us to lead if there were no men present. And so I, I was literally, I was a worship leader for three years, right? And then my last year, I had this white male worship leader who became, who came on to staff and he, he, could, he could play guitar. So now he came up to me after the rehearsal, by the way, um, uh, that year, I think on our first, our first meeting, our first um, chapter meeting. And he said, you need to now learn how to follow. I'm here now. So I, I'm going to be leading our worship, the worship team. Literally that same year, I co-led a prayer team. <laughs> I swear to God, this is a daily prayer, a prayer group that came together every day at, on our campus at 12 noon, co-led it with a man. And I was like, hauled into like a, 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 a late um, conversation at night with the, with the staff leader and some of my friends who were going to a church that didn't allow women to speak. And they wanted to know why can Lisa co-lead a prayer, a prayer group? She's a woman. And I just said, you know, so this is the way it used to be in that ministry. Today, women are allowed to lead. 
Why? Because there aren't enough men. Yeah. To leave. So there. <laughs> yeah. So there. That's what you're talking about. The mercenary na- nature. It's yeah. not. It's not theological. Oh no. It's mercenary. No. It is. It is. It, it's 100 percent opportunistic, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw this, and I, and I, honestly, I, I it I see this within evangelicalism entirely, and you can see it. I think really well on display with how they embrace uh, Donald Trump. Because if, yes. if white evangelicals are being really honest with you, if you get them alone in a room somewhere, they're like, I don't like this guy either. Yeah. But, but, but he's furthering but. my agenda. He's better than the alternative, whatever the narrative needs to be. Um, he's a useful weapon. He's a cudgel that you can go out and, 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 you know, bash people with. But yeah, wow. so it's so opportunistic that, that mm-hmm. if that doesn't underscore how deeply corrupt that whole institution is. I don't know what does. I don't, I'm not sure it's where, I don't know that it's savable, the institution mm-hmm. that is. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I have to believe people are salvageable, but that, that institution may not be. Yeah, I, I used to, I mean, I really did. I was part of the, the movement to save evangelicalism back in the, in the late 2000s and early 2010s, right? Yeah, very much like, you know, got to save this, you know, get it back from the right. They, they're decrypting it. Yeah, we're taking but, it back. Yeah, you know, I started to think, I really started to think, I'm thinking, did Jesus call himself an evangelical? No. No. Did Paul? No. Um, in fact, the people who are, who now even historians call evangelicals didn't call themselves evangelicals. So what is, why do I feel this need? And evangelicalism is a movement that came out of the European histor- historical experience for a yeah. reason. I mean, it did great things when it first came about in the 1600s in <laughs> Europe. I mean, seriously, like it, it actually democratized the faith. It, it brought about prayer groups and Bible studies that, to take the power to define the faith out of the clergy and into regular lay people. That's an amazing thing that happened. In fact, it was kind of a democratizing force in America as well. So it was evangel. It was the evangelical movement that that called for abolition. It was the evan- It was evangelicals that actually called for suffrage. You realize Elizabeth Cady Stanton. One of her things was to write a women's Bible. Mm. Like she actually translated the Bible for women. I mean, that's crazy in the eighteen hundreds. So this this was an, a European project that happened in a context for a reason for, and good stuff happened, but it's a European project, right? It's not, and the Bible is not a European project. The Bible and Jesus were as a brown colonized project. It's people who were literally colonized by white supremacist Rome, by the Roman Empire, which literally believed that you were not fully human if you were not Western like them, male or able-bodied. So if you were not one of those three things, you were not human. And so that's how Rome saw Jesus, this brown man with curly, kinky hair and um, who walked around with brown people with curly, kinky hair. And, um, and, and, and so they were not seen as fully human. And yet, it's in the halls of white um, empire that our faith has been redefined, has been defined for us. So what it looks like, I believe, what it's going to take for the church to be made well again is to decolonize our faith. Our faith has been colonized. Jesus has been colonized. And how do we do that? We lift Jesus out of his context. We lift our faith out of the context within which it was it was born, written in, um, originally interpreted within. No, it's uh, John and I are both sort of, I, I don't know if we're in the midst of or if we're sort of 
I don't know, immersed in this thing that has been called deconstruction by many. And it's just a process by which we've, you know, either knowingly or unknowingly begun to go and question, Mm -hmm. unravel a lot of things that we had thought to be pretty solid and foundational. And Mm -hmm. um, it's been a, it's been a hell of a ride. Um, But I bring it up because the, the, the inevitable question after you sort of go through that process is then what do you rebuild after? Yes. And so my, my question for you then would be, is that a project, is that a renovation project that's worth undertaking or is, are we better off imagining something completely different? Like, no. like do we not, do we not want to keep this, the, the same framework, you know, the same, you know, and maybe just think of that. Anyway, I'm, that, I'm just curious <laughs> what your thoughts are. I articulated I that so well, by the way. <laughs> no, yeah, that was Awesome. I hear you, brother. I hear you. Long beard and all. (laughs) (laughs) It does provide a filter, you know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, but it actually, it does. It speaks a lot. So here's here's what I say to that. Don't throw out Jesus. Oh, no. Don't throw out the Bible. Just understand who they really were and who really wrote it. It will change what you see. It will change how you understand it. And I think we need to appreciate, appreciate the theologians of Europe that were speaking into their context. Calvin had a very specific project speaking into a very specific context. But what we've done is we've taken his context and said it it works everywhere. And it doesn't. Luther had a very specific thing he was working against. It was good what he did. But Luther also, you know, was, was not cool in other ways. He was also a white supremacist, right? So, uh, very much so, right? So, so what, uh, the question that, that I've been asking, and I, I, don't, I don't actually call it deconstructing, I call it decolonizing for mm. a reason. Yeah, for sure. Because it's not just, it's not simply a deconstruction project. That, that for me feels a little bit too... Like, okay, like uh, unguided, like there's nothing really guiding it. I'm guiding the project, guiding the, the work. Okay, anybody can deconstruct anything, quite honestly. So that's not very hard. But to, to understand that it's actually a decolonizing project, under it grounds it in the history of what happened to it. It was colonized. It was colonized by Constantine to begin with, when this brown faith was taken up into the halls of European empire. It was colonized when it was um, Romanized. It was colonized when it was Germanized, when it was, um, when it was taken up into the halls of academia and then said, you, whatever you say is true, that's not how we see it is no longer orthodox. Who are you? Like, I mean, really, who do you think you are to tell me, a brown colonized person, what this brown colonized text means? Come on now. Come on now. <laughs> and, and I think that, I think we can, we can actually, we see, we see the impact of, of that colonized religion precisely around slaveocracy, around this, the uh, transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. Because it is, in Calvin's Switzerland, mm-hmm. that you have investment, deep investments in the trade, in the slave trade. You don't have, you don't have slavery in Switzerland and you don't have 
Switzerland as a nation actually, you know, owning or colonizing another nation. But what you do have is you have Swiss bankers and Swiss money um, banking, like funding the, um, the, the transatlantic slave trade. And it was Calvin's Switzerland that did that. So how could it be? How could it be that this utterly saturated Calvinist land was okay with that. Well, it's okay with that because something was not right with the way that Calvin drew the world, drew the faith, mapped the faith. Yeah. Well, then and you have you have Luther's Germany, who then yeah. with the again, oh, you know, wow. several hundred years removed, obviously, but um, perpetrate one of the greatest crimes against humanity, aided yeah. and abetted by the, the Swiss and the Swiss, where and they had all that money. That's I mean, they, right. they've they've taken this whole you know, um, neutrality thing to right. whole new levels. It's just, not, right. it's, it's not even funny, but That's the, right. uh, it, it's telling to me that, uh, I think it was Brian Zond who, who t- wrote about this in one of his books. So that if you go to the Holocaust museum and I believe it's in Tel Aviv, there's mm-hmm. one in particular that's, that's, uh, the whole exhibit is chronological. Mm-hmm. And when you walk in the door, it starts with what they, what they perceive to be the, um, you know, the seeds of the Holocaust and it's Martin Luther. Oh, you wow. know, and his anti-Semitism wow. that, that fed that ma- imagination for the next several hundred years that allows a Hitler to rise to power and say, see, we've been saying this all along. Yeah. You know, we might yeah. be a polite society, but we all know who the real culprit here is. And so the, uh, the but what, you, what you're speaking about is something that, speaking as a white male, mm-hmm. um, is, is utterly foreign to me. I have to be honest and say that... that I, to, to, I, I can try and empathize and understand what it means to be colonized, but I have no clue. And so that's something that has to come into the lexicon of white American evangelicals if they're, if they're willing to listen and yeah. open up their minds and their hearts to understand what this looks like and sounds like to a people who have been systematically colonized for generations and generations, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, and let me just say very quickly that that's why I focus on family history so much. Mm. We'll you talk see, about because, that for sure. Because whiteness as a construct, we've already said, is an apparition. It's a ghost. It doesn't really, doesn't really exist. It's just a thing that was constructed to determine who had power on the land. And in order for you to become white as a European, you had to renounce your ethnic, um, your ethnic affiliation. You can no longer say, I'm Swiss. You had to say, I'm white when you came to America, you can no longer say I'm, I'm Dutch or I'm, um, I had to, I'm white in order to get the bounty of whiteness rulership on this land. And what that has done then is it's extricated white, um, European Americans from their own history, from their own story, from their own people and struggle. And, and has and now, I mean, really people of European descent in America now kind of exist in this netherworld that is, it hangs on by a string, a thread, and it, the thread is called whiteness. It's the only thing that tethers people of European descent to their own identity is this thing called whiteness. And it only exists to do one thing, to determine who has power. So you understand then why January 6th happened. Because whiteness, the, the supremacy of whiteness is actually, it is I'm being threatened by the demographic change that's happening in America. It's just, and it's going to happen. 
You cannot stop it. It's not going to change. So you have a choice as people of European descent. You can try to continue that, 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 that project of domination. Continue the project of trying to be the ones who are supreme, who have the, the assumed power in the room, and especially as white men. Or you can lay down your arms. I think it's time, y'all. It's time. It's time to lay down your arms against the image of God in all, in the rest of humanity. It's, it's time to come and join the, the, the human circle, the rest of us who are, you know, we're down here on the human level, just simply being human and, and actually having a party down here. You're welcome to join us. <laughs> You're good. It's good. It's actually, the music is amazing and the food is amazing. Right. And, and guess what? Your food and your music reclaimed would also be able to join it because you do have history and culture that got taken from you when you claimed whiteness. Mm. You need to reclaim your identity. Isn't that interesting? Amen. Because you know, um, I, you know, Nat and I were raised to grab onto certain parts of our of our background, right? Of our mm-hmm. of our, and of course, uh, we have we are of Irish descent, right? So there are there are moments where we are proud to be Irish, right? Right, right. But, Say Patty's Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, and, yeah, you and, my, and my, yeah, you yeah. know, our grandmother. Uh, which we can't, we can't claim this and we can't even prove it one way or the other. But, you know, she always told us how we were, that we were, uh, part Native American, right? That we were, mm-hmm. that, that her, her connection was always, uh, said that we were Cherokee. Wow. And where were, where were your people? Where were they? Uh, my, my grandparents, uh, were from Oklahoma. Um, oh yeah, well, there's uh, a very good chance yeah. that there's some some uh, Cherokee Push, in there. Pushmataha County is where my, my grandparents live. Mm-hmm. So, wow. um, but looking through, you know, I, again, we can't, we can't back this up. We can't really mm-hmm. say that for sure. Uh, it actually mm-hmm. looks, if, if it is even true, it's probably more likely that we are Choctaw than we are Cherokee. Um, mm-hmm. but again, mm-hmm. as, but as, as we move forward, that identity of Irish American or Italian American gets overlaid by I'm white, right? And you yeah, see and, it, yeah. you see it even back. You see it as the census starts to change how they how they how they write people down, right? And I noticed this in your book, right? You're either going to get a W by your name, you're going to get a B by your name, or you're going to get an it was an MU. An um, MU is mulatto, right. meaning both, right? Or an I later, meaning Indian. Right. Although most people didn't claim that unless you're an Indian country. Yeah. So the census exactly. even works in its way to basically pigeonhole us into white people, black people, mixed race. Or Indian, right? Mm-hmm. So they even take away our history. They even take away our connection to whatever we were to hold on to that power as a white person that I have, right? That's exactly right. And John, let me just say this, that in all of the years of the census since 1790, the only racial categorization that has never changed, never been disaggregated, never been pulled apart and parsed apart is white. You will never see a racial category on, on our census that says Irish American right. or, um, or Dutch or no, it's white, but you will see African American, Caribbean American, Nigerian. You know, you'll see, you'll see multiple Asian American, um, or Asian, um, affiliations. Hmm. Hmong is on there, which is not a race. It's a, na- a nation. 
and a cultural group um, and an ethnic group, but it's not, it's not a race. Um, so race itself is an illogical right. construct that looks illogical when you look at our senses. Would you say that, it, would you say that it's uh, it, maybe overtly or not overtly a way of creating a system that keeps whites in the majority? <laughs> overtly. That's exactly the point. That's the reason. Yes. And that's why they've never disaggregated whiteness because that would cause white men to lose political power. So yeah, you start breaking that apart to all the different affiliations and now we we look like we're more evenly spread out, right? Exactly. Rather than one huge voting block that we're all going to just go vote the same way. Exactly. Um, it's, it's such a... I remember the first time um, that I heard somebody talk about some of this stuff, especially about whiteness being a construct. And I can't remember the way that she put it. It was essentially that that whiteness was created as the norm against which everything else would be measured. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a very subtle and sneaky way of preserving um, um, a, su- a supremacy that maybe feels less um, obvious. Is that, is that, you think I'm saying that correctly? I mean, I mean, it's obvious to some, but for others, it might be like, well, we're not, you know, it just, that's just normal. And everything else is now a variation on that theme. I think that what whiteness, whiteness was created to do in America and actually anywhere where colonization happened by European powers, whiteness was created to establish who could rule there. That's what it was, it was created to do that. But the impact of it, the impact, the, the fruit of whiteness was that it normalized it made whiteness normative. And then what it did was it said, white people are human, right? Because we know on the first page of the Bible, it tells us humans are called to exercise dominion in the world. It's what it means to be human, is to be made in the image of God and called with by, the, by, by God with the capacity to exercise dominion in the world. That's what it means to be human. So when people of European descent, um, uh, instituted this policy, this construct called whiteness and said, white people are the ones who are created to exercise dominion in the world. What they really did is they said, white equals human. Mm. Yikes. Okay. You see what I'm saying? So then whiteness is absolutely normative. White is human. Anything that's not white is not human. Well, and we went as far as to put it in the constitution, right? Clearly, compromise. Right, right. (laughs) That, uh, that only white people were considered fully human. Yes. Anybody else was not even close to the level of what the white race, which again, doesn't exist. For everyone who, whoever, whoever's listening right now, the white race is completely made up. Okay? Mm-hmm. Stop using it. Yeah. We are who we are. We We're are our human. descendants. We are connected to the people of our past. Mm-hmm. And... Shockingly, you're going to find out that all of our past connects to that area called Africa. Because mm-hmm. yeah. we can we see all go back there. where it's the so original true. people right. came from. And if you are too blind to see that, if you're too ignorant to see that, mm-hmm. then you're just living in the white supremacy lie. Yeah. You're the somehow metric, man. You, you popped mm-hmm. up in Europe without ever existing someplace else. And that's just, I mean, it's just asinine and stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let me just say something great. I, I want to say something important about that, though. Yeah. It's important for us to renounce the power of whiteness in our world. Mm-hmm. And I Absolutely. do think it's important for people of European descent to reclaim your heritage. But it's also important, really, really important for us to not deny that 
the actual racialization that happened in our world, yeah. the whiteification of our laws yep. and our structures and our schools and our, our, our Bibles. I mean, our churches, we have to face all of that in order to find a new way of living together in the world. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, unfortunately, that's going to have to be where we're going to have to call a close to this conversation, which I absolutely don't want to do, but oh, I know, no, I know we have great. to, I know we have to, um, and we, and people listening, we have just barely scratched the surface of this book. You need to understand that we have, we have just, there is so much in this book. And like I freely admitted, I think before we went on that I've only read a third of it. It's a lot. There's a lot to read. There's a lot there to chew on. Um, Take your time reading this book. Listen to what it's saying. I cannot tell you how important this book is to what we are trying to do here. What, what the voices that need to be heard. Uh, and I mean, I had notes that we never even got to that <laughs> I, I want to talk right? about. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Um, yeah, we appreciate and, it. Uh, uh, just remind us again, uh, when does the book release? The book releases February 8th. And you oh, can wow. track okay. with us throughout the month of February. We're declaring February Black Fortune Month. And so nice. an opportunity, right? An opportunity to read the book. You can download the study guide. So you can actually, it's like an interactive um, journal guide. You can actually just go ahead and like really do some deep reflection in the book. And then also weekly events. And it'll be ending with a call for truth telling and mm. repair at the end of the month. That's amazing. Nice. So, nice. yeah, please um, get yourself on the on the on the pre order list, or or make sure you get a copy when it comes out. And uh, churches, if you if you're in a church and you're leading a church, whatever, really think hard about bringing something like this into your congregation to open up a dialogue. I think that it's an overdue discussion that needs to take place inside of uh, inside of our churches. So, anyway, we really appreciate you being here. And now that a dog has barked, we have to make our our official John Piper joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no puppies were harmed in the recording of this podcast. <laughs> All right. Hey, that's, it's usually it's usually me whose dog is barking. So. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. I well, it. I love it. Yes, we will definitely link to everything in our bio. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.